A listener note. The safety information discussed in this podcast are our views based on our personal firsthand experiences. Each safety situation presents unique risks, and the solutions discussed in this podcast should not take the place of thorough risk assessments or evaluations based on your specific circumstances. Thank you. Welcome to Safe, Efficient, Profitable, a Worker Safety Podcast, where we break down real problems from real situations and discuss realistic solutions. And here's your host, owner of Allen Safety LLC and CHMM, Joe Allen. This is Joe with Allen Safety, podcast number seven. We've had a great series about emergency response and pre-emergency planning, basically pre-emergency readiness. And we've had a guest for the last two episodes. We were lucky enough to have a guest for this episode also. And the guest is Jen. Hello, Jen. Hello, everybody. I am back. What we're going to cover today is we're going to go over a recap real quick of a couple episodes ago. We talked about getting everything ready for your response. And then the last episode was basically figuring out who's going to be trained, what level you're going to be at, and how you're going to overall manage a process. And now this podcast is about now you're actually doing the process or doing the response. So Jen's going to talk a little bit about the different levels and how we address it as a company and kind of how we manage these problems. We've been involved with hundreds of live events. And so they all just kind of have their own little flow, but there's always a sequence we go through first to break down each variable. So what we'll do now is we're going to turn it over to Jen and here you go. Yeah. So as we start kind of getting into a leak response, Like Joe mentioned, they kind of do take a life of their own. So what we generally see is somebody calls on a radio, somebody smells something, you know, somebody's eyes water. Uh, There's some kind of trigger event that says, hey, I think we have something going on here. And then there's an investigation. So what, you know, that could look like bringing out some APRs and a meter to see what we've got going on. It could just be a visual investigation. It could be a myriad of different things. But there's always some kind of investigation to figure out what do we need to do next. At that point, based on what the investigation team figures out, there may be a call to gather the hazmat team and you know just start getting people coming in if they're off shift, start getting managers ready, just start staging equipment, things like that. Simultaneous to that, depending on what your levels are, whatever the chemical was that was released, you may be needing to do some evacuation. So whether that's an entire facility evacuation, maybe it's just one area of the facility or one specific department, um, that's also going to be dependent on what your release is and what portion of the facility it's in. And so you could have things going on all at one time is probably the most important part. This is where it comes to be really critical on practicing those evacuation drills, not only for fire. Yes, that's important. But additionally, the thing 
thing that Joe and I see missed a lot is we don't do evacuation drills for some kind of chemical event, some kind of chemical release. And so there's been a lot of facilities that have had some confusion in regards to how and where to evacuate. One that comes to mind specifically for me, Joe, is that we had an evacuation going on during shift change. And we also had a hazmat event going on simultaneous. So we had all of those things going on. It was kind of an uncontrolled um, evacuation. Folks weren't sure where to go, how to go, where upwind was. They weren't really sure where and how to get it accounted for by their supervisor. And so, you know, when I think of evacuations and making sure that we are practicing those, that's an event that really comes to mind. Yeah, what I look for on the evacuation side is that if the people are going to evacuate, you could have a few people that you evacuate everybody, but someone's coming 20 minutes late for work or someone got caught in traffic so they haven't got to work yet. Someone's delivering the, the sodas or the waters to this vendor. Well, all these things are could be coming on site while you're evacuating. So you can have everything that Jen talked about and still have these influx of variables that are coming towards you at the same time and you're trying to manage as well. So she's right. Practicing that, rehearsing that, you know, going over how that would flow in real time. And most people, when they do the evacuation, it's like they say, okay, it's 9.03, we're going to do it today. What I'm saying is, Jen, we've had so many events during uh, shift change. I like doing them around those times to see how and where we're going to move everybody to. Yeah. And so it's also probably important to cover that during your evacuations, depending on who you've trained, we kind of covered some of the training between incident manager and incident command last week and some of the differences. But this is where like your evacuation coordinators really come into play and in making sure that they have been trained to understand their role in regards to evacuation during specifically a chemical release event. So specifically, you're going to want to make sure that those evacuation coordinators understand when we're doing sweeps where they should and shouldn't go. If it's a chemical event, do we even wanting them doing sweeps? of areas, um, you know, employee welfare areas, places like that? Or do we want to just get everybody outside? Are we taking primary or secondary evacuation routes? And are we going upwind? And what does that assembly area look like if it's an upwind situation? And do we have plans for that? Simultaneous to the evacuations going on and getting ready and getting the cavalry back for a hazmat event and getting our equipment staged, we're also going to be doing things like making any corporate calls that we need to do to notify anyone if we think we've lost over the reportable quantity. We want to make sure we're making those reportable quantity calls. And as Joe mentioned, you know, you could have security on site that you're also trying to direct where they need to go to stay safe. Any truckers, fire trucks that could be coming on, depending on if your LAPC listens to any of your radio traffic at your facility or if there's been any calls made to them. Same with ambulances. And you also have to, as an incident commander, as well as a manager at a facility, have an understanding that if you've got an event going on, And if you've had an evacuation going on and folks have been allowed to either keep their cell phones or go grab their cell phones, there's the very real possibility that you may have a little bit of uncontrolled media coverage in the sense that there may be some pictures being taken, comments being made on social media outlets. And so that's just something to be aware of as well. Years, years ago, we saw all of a fire from a location based on the Facebook postings. And we had never seen nothing like that ever before. So it was a, a different time to think about what people would do and what they do not. And and it's just different. So it's not good or bad. It's just trying to manage your scene and manage what is going on and keep it in front of you so you don't get behind. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Just something to be aware of. So while all of this is going down, your hazmat team is going to be trying to determine what your cold, warm, and hot zones are. If you've got a stage three team or a level A response team, you're going to be looking at how are you getting those vitals taken, who your responders are. You're going to be checking last dates of training and what level they're trained up to. So when we start talking hazmat, you're talking things like technician level, incident commander. You may have some folks that are trained to operations level only. So you're going to start kind of teasing that information out and figuring out who can do what. Are their vitals going to be allowing them to be medically cleared to wear gear or not? You're going to want to look at some decon setup. So let's kind of break down decon real quick just for a second. We've got two different options and we get asked a lot about the differences between wet decon and dry decon and why one may be preferred over the other. Joe, do you want to cover that real quick? Sure. The first thing we do is we take the SDS and we read on there what's it say for first aid CPR. Now, everyone knows I used to be a, a, a corpsman in the Navy, and the way we I was trained to always handle chemical events was if you got chemical on you, then we would wash you off, and the more water off of you brings the product with it. So as the water hits your body, comes in contact with the chemical, slowly removes the chemical from you, and that way you're not being as hurt as bad from a physical standpoint. Now, the other side of that is, is that it may be an eye wash and shower you decide to use. If you're doing uh, a stage two response, it may be uh, a whole decon setup where you're going to wash people coming out of uh, chem suits. It may be a fire truck setting up with a nozzle where they're going to wash people down. There's different ways that this process is done. But the main thing is, is that everything from our side has always been wet decon. Now, there has been people like do dry decon. What dry decon in is basically you come outside, you have a fan system or something like that. The product basically blows the chemical or dries the chemical off and you're fine. And, and I'm not saying that people are right or wrong when they say that process. We are a live event company. What that means is we only give information about what we have seen that has happened real time at a live event. And we've seen real time the dry decon not meet the goal with the wet decon has. So we've stayed on the wet decon side just because of the end user employee number one having chemical on them. We want chemical number one off of them as fast as we can. And it seems to be better with the wet decon system. Yeah. And in addition to that, Joe, there's also the consideration of if you've got a chemical mixture or something like that happening. I do understand that weather can certainly be a concern and that's something to definitely factor in based on what you're doing. You want to make sure that you've got some protocols in your EAP or ERP that you can account for. How are you going to manage decontamination processes if you're performing decon at your site during cold weather, if you're in a region of the country that gets cold weather and that would be a concern. So that's definitely some things that you want to have some protocols around. In addition to that, Joe mentioned... Um, deconning the possibility of if there's any victims. And that's also something we want to address is, you know, those dignity protocols. We're going to manage the response. So this is a leak response. Uh, as we're managing this leak and moving forward, we should be evaluating on pre-emergency planning. 
How are we going to decon? Where are we going to have them out? Where are we going to have them? Are they going to be outside in the cold? Are they going to be in a building? And then how are we going to protect them if they if they do get product on them? Do we have a shower system? Do we have a room we can take them into to wash off? What can we do to protect their dignity? Um, and so we, we look at all those factors when we're looking at evaluations or working with different companies. And that is the goal of the, of the pre-emergency is to plan out all these variables that happen. You know, we're going to have more rain issues maybe in the south during the summer and more snow during the winter up north. So if we do, we still have to plan how we're going to manage it that day, that time, and that situation. Absolutely. And so all of this is going on where you could have victims coming out. And that's why Joe and I typically recommend you get your decon set up first and you get your decon folks ready to go. You get those vitals taken and you get them ready to go. And then you can start working with your responders and getting those vitals taken and making sure that they're medically cleared, working on their briefing because your decon team may be busy deconning some victims. So that's something that you'd also want to look at. So as we start moving into the response side of things, obviously you're going to want to send your entry team in with some kind of ballpark plan. And so that's where any block flow diagrams that you may have, any PNIDs, SOPs, those come into play pretty heavily during this portion of the response and just making sure that everybody's on the same page. We know exactly the specific parameters that we want to work within. And we also understand, you know, this is the time frame that we're going to allow our entry team to be in the hot zone, regardless of whether they're able to or not able to complete the task. This is the length of time before they have to bail out and come back to the warm zone to get deconned. And so those are all things that you want to set up in terms of the briefing and making sure that you've got good communication before they head back or head out to the hot zone. And so they'll make their entry, they'll do their task, they'll either complete it fully or, you know, it'll be partially complete. They'll get deconned. We'll work on our debriefing and get vitals. And then from there, we just start looking at the repeat and verify, repeat and verify as needed. So Joe, this is more your house of the return to normal and the ventilation side. So I'll kind of let you take it from here. So in any of the the live events we worked, there has to be a point where, you know, 15 minutes, six hours or seven days when when we're coming through the part of we are done with the task of turning whatever it is off, ventilating or whatever that starting that process is. When we do that, sometimes the ventilation return to work, release the floors takes longer to do than the actual response did. So for example, we had a location years ago, we had a leak, we managed the leak, we did a great job. But on a, on a math calculation, I usually calculate for about every hour of a leak, we could have three to four hours of after leak to return it. So if leaks 10 hours, I could have two or three days or so of trying to return that leak back to normal. So I'm thinking about that as I'm as we're going through these leaks. It is just because the response is done doesn't mean that the the whole process is done. That just means we got one step done, and now we've got to try to ventilate or release the floors or take meter readings or send teams in. We're still working under that command system until we get all that accomplished. Absolutely, and I think that that's an important part to note is that the time frame of the return to normal 
is a huge thing to look at when you're looking at how many incident commanders you want to train. They can only be on site for a certain amount of time before they get fatigued. We need to send them home and give them a break. And if we're having a return to normal situation last over the course of several days, maybe we're cutting out chunks of wall, maybe we're having to render out contaminated products or ship out contaminated products that's gassing off and still, you know, putting us above those evacuation levels. Someone still has to be managing that because it's still technically a chemical event. And so that person would need training. They would need to understand how long folks can be in an APR or if we need an SCBA or what the meters are telling them when they're at a certain level. They still need training to do that. And so you start going through incident commanders at a pretty fast rate. Yes. And then the, after we complete the task for releasing the floors, then we go back to verifying. We make a documentation that, yes, we are done. Yes, we have accomplished the task. And yes, we're ready to go. And then at that process, we turn it back over the location. Absolutely. And from there, from a PSM side, you'd want to make sure that you're getting your debriefings done. You're doing your formal critique. If you need to get any statements of folks that were involved, if there was any victims, you'd want to get your witness statements. You'd want to make sure that you've got any logger notes from if you had a logger during the event. And then, of course, if you had any victims or anyone that had any exposures, you'd want to make sure that you follow your medical surveillance program through the medical side as well. So for today, uh, we're getting ready to wrap up. That was a uh a quick look at how you uh, look at a leak response and a shutdown and return back to normal. Uh, we are pretty excited that we're going to do something on the next one that was not even something we had talked about, but we identified that, hey, that would be a good idea. And the next one we're going to do is about how to run command for real. And we're going to um, have some people, including ourselves, to talk about what's it feel like to run command, what are some of the stressors, what are some of the items you would never think about that people didn't maybe teach you about that actually happened. So we'll be covering the next episode. So please uh, remind yourself to uh, click on to the next episode as well. And I hope you enjoyed this one today. We appreciate you again, always for listening. And Jen, what do you have to close out? Uh, We'll see you next week. We're excited to be here and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you and have a good day. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to Safe, Efficient, Profitable, a worker safety podcast. If you like what you heard here, please take a moment to write us a quick review, like, subscribe, and share our podcast so that others can find us. For questions or to request topics that you'd like to hear on our next show, please visit us at www.allen-safety.com. Thank you. Safety first, stay safe.